Hello everyone. Welcome to Ruth is Stranger Than Fiction. studio who thinks they're going to say something stupid immediately. Oh, you said I was going to say something stupid immediately. (laughs) It's Katie Holiday. Hello, Katie. Hello. How have you been? Better. Now I'm in your house. Hooray. Hooray. Because of course the studio is just our house. Katie's back. Yeah. Uh, It means Chris is also here, but you won't hear him because he's got his headphones on again. Unless I'm too drivelly and Chris needs to step in. He might have to step in. Chris, just shout hello. Hello. There you go. There he is. Hi. Hi. Hello. How exciting. We're back with a good story for Katie because I, I started researching this one ages ago and then I thought, come on, this is exactly the kind of story Katie's going to like. And Chris will like it too, but it's much better if Katie's involved. Thank you for saving it for me. I'm very excited. The story today is the amazing tale of Margaret Catchpole, Suffolk heroine. Brilliant. And I have prepared a drink to start us off. What um, are we drinking? I'll just explain because we need to get going on this drink before the ice melts. But the piece of information relating to the drink will not come for maybe five minutes. And that is to do with horses. And this drink is called a horse's neck with a kick. (laughs) What does that mean? Well, I don't know. It's just a a cocktail. And it's from um, Difford's Guide to Cocktails, A Horse's Neck with a Kick. And it's quite... By our standards, quite normal. So have a sip. Tell me what you can detect. Got something, some sweet whiskey stuff going on. Yes. And some, a bit of the old uh, gingery and a bit of the lemony. Exactly. So first off, bourbon. Mm. Bit of Jack Daniels in there. Second off, ginger ale. And then lemon peel garnish. And actually, I was, I didn't read it properly earlier. I was supposed to put a whole lemon peel in each one. Wowzers. But I didn't do that. I only Is had that the lemon. <laughs> I and guess, it, do you know whatever it is? It's very tasty. It's That's not really the kick. good. Apparently the um oh, there's one more thing that goes in, and actually I've put some in, but I'm going to put more in because I don't think we can taste it as Angostura bitters. Do you want a bit more? I'll have a dash more, definitely. Who even knows what Angostura bitters is? Not really me. Originally, apparently, a horse's neck is Angostura and ginger ale, and the kick is the bourbon. Very tasty. Could you taste? Oh the yeah, one? definitely. It's got a lot. Oh it's yes, got much more herbal. Oh, that's really uh, brought it to life. I'd say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Like someone's waved it past the Jägermeister. Yeah, <laughs> just they haven't submerged it in the Jägermeister, no. but they've just they've dribbled. Just say hello to this Jägermeister. <laughs> they've introduced it to the Jägermeister. Excellent. But in a good, in the best way that Jägermeister exactly. can be, not a unicum way. Not the worst of all kinds of herbal mel- melodies. Herbal. Remedies. Maladies. <laughs> Great. Well, that's a tasty first drink. I know Katie's got something later, which I've been told requires a hob. So <laughs> I'm slightly anxious. We'll see what happens. Okay. The story of Margaret Catchpole. Excellent. An intriguing and some would say inspiring figure from the history of Suffolk. Have you ever heard of her? Nope. Chris? I feel like I might have heard of a catchpole, but not Margaret. Chris shakes his head. I forget I have to explain now what his actions are. You've heard of a catchpole? No, I just thought the name sounded familiar. It's quite a sort of Dickensian name, Mm. actually, I think. It's one of those quite descriptive old names. Now, Margaret Catchpole 
was involved in criminal activities. But she's also regarded as a kind of heroine because of her unorthodox behaviour for a woman of the time and acts of bravery. So Aww. we would regard her, we'd be like, yes, get in, Margaret. We'd probably be Go quite Maggie. in favour of most of it. Go Maggie. A Maggie um, we can finally like. <laughs> Maggie we can get behind. And the thing about Margaret is that we know more about her life than is usual for women of her status because she was a, a from a farming background, uh, so obviously from a, like a working class background. And often with, with women from that kind of walk of life, we know very little about their lives. But there are a variety of records of Margaret's life, newspaper reports, letters that she herself wrote so there's quite a we'll come again to it later but there's quite a big depository of letters that she wrote to friends and family and there was also a book written about her life by Suffolk-based rector Richard Cobbold which was published 40 years after her death and we will hear more about Richard Cobbold and how he came to write this story a bit later on and that's called The History of Margaret Catchpole so that laid out a lot of facts and possibly Oh Richard what did he do? Let's not say fabrications, but maybe some exaggerations. But because her life was quite well documented in a various ways, we can actually say some of the stuff that Richard said wasn't true, but some of it we can be confirmed. So that's quite good. Even if we read Richard's book and we were like, only if only half of this is true, it's fun stuff. An unusual and fascinating woman. I'm intrigued, I'm intrigued. And only five foot two. Now, let's first have a bit of history about Margaret. She was born into a labouring family in Nacton, which is Ipswich, in 1762. Now, due to the nature of Margaret's family's work on the farm, she was familiar with horses from a young age. And the landowner owned the farm, but they were labourers on the farm. And Margaret became an accomplished rider. Mm. And now we see how the... We're drinking our horses. The horse drink begins to come relevant. And... Cobbold recounts a story from Margaret's youth that starts to illustrate her unorthodox and fearless nature and starts to begin at a young age the idea of this legend of Margaret Catchpole, which, looking back, Cobbold was trying to establish. But, you know, it does seem to be true, so fair play. When Margaret was but 13 and working on the farm, she visited the main farmhouse, only to find the house servants in a panic... The mistress of the house was writhing on the floor in fits. No one knew what to do. Was it put her in the recovery position and hope for the best? (laughs) Well, Margaret didn't know the recovery position, but (laughs) she took charge of the situation, even though she was but 13, a lot younger than some of the others. She was 13, younger than some of the house servants. She calmed the servants down. She made sure that the mistress of the house was in a position that was comfortable and safe. And then she thought, what about the doctor? We need a doctor. But there was no way of getting a doctor, not by phone. Not in 1770. Is she she the marathon runner? The Philippides of her day? Even better. She quickly ran to the stable where the horses were stabled. The Suffolk punches. That's a kind of horse. Got a drink. Without so much as a care for saddle and bridle, she leapt aboard. (laughs) She rode bareback to Ipswich. (laughs) A girl of 13 just riding bareback to Ipswich to fetch the doctor. Brilliant. What a star. When the doctor returned to the farmhouse, the mistress was found to be recovering and everyone present praised Margaret for her quick thinking, her calm head and her bravery in carrying out such a sort of daredevil rescue. Ah, what a legend. 
So we see the horse riding comes in quite important quite early on. And that, I think, establishes a sort of good idea of what her character is. She isn't cowed by the conventions of the time. No. And she will quickly spring into action if it's called for. It was also while Margaret was working at the farm at Nacton, she met a fellow named William Loud. Do we like him? Well, we don't know much of William on a personal basis, but what we do know is that he was to play a fateful role in her life for many years to come. And all through the story of Margaret, this figure of William will pop up over and over. And I'll say, not usually for the good. Oh, William, you rogue. He is a rogue. Oh, heck. She fell in love with William. And although she would not see him that often in the coming years, the love endured and it would ultimately shape the course of her life in an irreversible way. Unfortunately, William was a criminally minded sort. He was mixed up in various nefarious activities, including theft and smuggling along the Suffolk coast. William, you black-hearted swine. One thing I read about him said he was press-ganged into joining the Navy. Well, a lot of people were, but they didn't all come out and start stealing afterwards, (laughs) William. But I don't know if he was smuggling and then he got press-ganged. Well, then in which case? Or he first did the press-ganging and later the smuggling. But what's clear is from quite a young age, he was involved in some shady business. Mm. But and I'm not saying press ganging is nice, but I'm also thinking if you're already hanging around the Suffolk coast. I'm saying what is press ganging? You're forced to do something against your will. Does someone grab you off a dock and then you're on a boat? My understanding is often you are given some pints in a pub and then you're on a boat in the morning. Chris is nodding. He says they give you pints. The king's shilling, isn't it? The king's shilling? Mm. What's the king's shilling? But they hide the king's shilling at the bottom of your pints. And you drink it. You drink it and then you discover it at the bottom and that means you've got to join the Navy. Why? That's why in you've the old times, the sometimes pint glasses were like tankards, but with a glass bottom. So you could see that the shilling wasn't there. This seems outrageous. So once you've picked up the shilling, you're basically... Once you've ab- drunk the pint, find the shilling at the bottom... You're obliged you know, you to... You know now the cost of that pint. So they were obviously struggling to find people to oh, join you, the Navy. Oh, you're probably those people stealing. What? Now I have a lot more sympathy. Yeah, no, 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 no. It's really nasty. Like Chris said, you the shilling, but you know, also other times you're just given a load of booze, and then the next morning you wake you up, wake and you're, up on a boat, you're on a boat, and you thought you had a life and maybe oh, children and maybe a, a wife, or maybe you fancied someone you were going to get married, <sighs> and then suddenly you live on a boat for three years. And did the army do this, or mainly the navy? The navy that I know of, Chris. I don't know about you. Chris is like, yeah, probably the navy. I suppose because it's harder to press gang someone to join the army because you can just run away. Yes, but exactly once you're that. on a boat, what it's can exactly you do? that. And your boat trips are going to take years and years and years. Yeah, in those days, wow. So the gist of it was, don't be a young man who likes a pint because you're going to end up on a boat <laughs> in the morning. Always look in the bottom of your pint. That's the lesson. Or just, but I think sometimes they just had a couple of pints and then they were giddy and God. then they were on a boat. We're hiding the bottom of this drink with lemon peel. He knows what's down there. Heck, heck. I mean. I should have made us a drink where I put a shilling in a pint. We'll I didn't do that next know. time. Next time. Okay. But would the rust affect the taste? Would it be rusty? I don't know about ginger. Interestingly, I have this week spent a week with 10 beakers with various liquids with uh, <laughs> nails in to see which ones made the most rust. Oh, tell us the liquids. I bet one of them's Coca-Cola. The children suggested that, but no, because I didn't want to give up my Coca-Cola. So um, they had uh, just water, water and salt, water and sugar, vinegar, the variety, okay, orange fine, juice, fine, fine. hand sanitizer. And what is rotting the nail the fastest? The most rust is with the water or water and some salt. Too much salt, it doesn't happen, like the Dead Sea, not enough oxygen. Next, you have to do it with a tooth. 
We, we did that in year four. You got a tooth? No, we use an eggshell, a hard-boiled egg. <laughs> because it has a similar yeah, composition. A similar as a tooth. calcium, a calciate makeup. I mean, this has got, I've definitely taken it on a tangent now. Fine, that's fine. <laughs> We're all about tangents. Well, we'll come back to William later. And his jars of rusty nails. And his jars of rusty nails and his press ganging aboard a bloody Her Majesty's Navy, whatever it is, His Highnesses. But first, we must hear more of Margaret, because mm. she's our heroine. Once Margaret reached her 30s, she left the farm. She'd been there a long time. 30 years. She spent time working as a house servant for several different posh families in the region. And this, I suppose, was quite a common vocation at the time, that you would be, you know, go and work as a nurse or go and work as a... Maybe you would look after the kids or you would, you know, do the cleaning, whatever, do the cooking. Scrubbing, lots of scrubbing. I bet loads of scrubbing. So this is around 1790, just for reference. The last family she went to work for in the series of different families was the aforementioned Cobolds. Richard Cobold, of course, wrote the history of Margaret Catchpole, which was published after her death. Now, the Cobolds were quite an interesting family, actually, and Margaret grew quite close to them. And so Richard says in his book treated her almost as a member of the family. Yes, but he would say that. He would say that, Of course he he? would, Richard. He wants to make his family look brilliant. Yeah. He's like, Um, we're so welcoming. (laughs) Come and work for us. It's basically an advert. But little did he know no one would be able to read it that he wanted to work for him. And they are quite an interesting family. They were a prosperous Ipswich family, having made their money through the brewing industry. Mm. And you may recognise, do you recognise the name Tolly Cobbled? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, And Tolly Cobbled was a brewery that was formed through the combination of the Cobbled family brewery and another East Anglian brewery called Tolomac. And they formed together to become Tolly Cobbled. The Golden Hind pub in North Cambridge was a Tolomac brewery. And that was one of a series of buildings known as Tolly's Follies because they were these sort of huge sort of neo-Gothic built as if they were relics of a castle or something like that with all these kind of really unnecessary architectural features. Because oh, it and is preposterous. Preposterous with like chimneys that actually aren't chimneys and like weird little gables and all that kind of thing. Um, oh, that's so, such a cool reason. Yeah, Tolly's Follies. So anyway, the Tolomac Brewery and the Cobble Brewery later merged and also in later centuries the family has become involved in other areas of industry the cobbled family is still known in Ipswich for example in the 20th century they worked with Ipswich Town Football Club and in 1948 no that's Norwich that's Norwich I realized as soon as I said I'm sorry Chris I'm really sorry as soon as I said it what I shouldn't have tried to guess what's Ipswich Town the Tractor Boys. The Tractor Boys? I guess there's a little farming. Makes sense. And Johnny Cobbled, who was a, a Cobbled of the 20th century, by his 21st birthday, he was chairman of the club of Ipswich Town. Mm. So good for him. Or they've just bought the club. They've just bought the club. That's not, I mean, still. This Delia was all. Smith can buy a club. I think that doesn't really count, but fine. Oh, Enjoy it. Smith. Enjoy it. <laughs> that is the Canaries. Yes. Um, I know, apparently I know about one club in the world. <laughs> just I'm gonna, about so I'm going to keep mentioning them for the rest of the evening, just so everyone's clear. Do you think Ipswich Town across the Norwich City are a city and they're only a town? They haven't built a cathedral. If you want to be a city, build a cathedral. To get on the act, And they all be Cambridge and illegally get to be a city. Get a different thing. Or Brighton has the pavilion. 
Is that why they're a city? Oh, I don't know. I don't know how they managed they it. Sp- they only managed it by merging with Hove. Uh, only then was it allowed. There's um, some nice stuff in Hove. That's probably what they thought. <laughs> Hove is like the posh neighbour of Brighton. We used to live there. Hove, actually. Hove, actually. Still, this was all some time away. So don't think about Ipswich Town. No. Don't think about Tolly Cobbled. Only think of Cobbled. When Margaret was at the household, brewing was the thing. The master of the house was John Cobbled, or as he was known, Big John. Ah, did he mash all the tons himself? I don't know. I like to think he started off mashing. And by by the time Margaret came into the household, he was on his second marriage and he had an astonishing 22 children. Oh my gosh. Big John. Big John, I know. I mean, stop stop saying that. (laughs) 15 children from the first marriage. What? And seven from the second one. I, I know. Mean, Big John, that's too many. And one of these 22 children was to later become the Reverend Richard Cobbold, who wrote the uh, life story of Margaret Catchpole. Yeah, so that's a lot of Big kids. Big John didn't even know which one it was. Though. He's like, I've got hundreds <laughs> of children. They're all just here. 22 is crazy, isn't mashing it? Mashing the tons. And just two wives. Because, I mean, 22 if you're just spurting your seed around Ipswich. 15's not all right. I mean, I haven't had one, but 15's not all right. how did she even manage it? How was she even alive by the end of that? Oh, dear. Some of the old uh, herbal remedies. Maybe. She was just downing unicum. (laughs) (laughs) But by 15, I don't even think that's going to (laughs) work. The disgusting taste of the unicum would override the pain of the 15th labour. <laughs> it's the only thing that would be more horrible <laughs> than your 15th labour. Just for those of you who don't know, unicum is, I'm sure we've talked it's about horrible. it before. It's the most disgusting alcoholic drink I've ever tried. And I think it's from, where is it from? We were in Budapest. Hungary. Yeah. But it might be from somewhere else. And they it, just... I thought I, I assumed it was the drink of because we kept yeah. giving it everywhere. It was at the time of the second wife that Margaret came onto the scene in the cobbled household. And the second wife actually is also an interesting character in her own right. Her name was Elizabeth. Typically, dare I say, for a second wife, she was around 20 years younger than her husband. Oh, that's a lot. Well, but not uncommon, I'd say. And Big John's already got 15 kids. Yeah. Luckily, most of them are be already out of the house but some of them are going to be older than her yep she in fact uh yes Mar- elizabeth was 20 years younger than big john and actually she was a few years younger than margaret so she was sort of in her 20s mm. elizabeth was a published poet oh and she pursued interests in science and the arts most notably in her studies of geology and zoology oh well gosh well done elizabeth i know good for you Brilliant. elizabeth and it makes me think a little more highly of big john yeah she yeah. was known for her research on mineral conchology 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 what that is what is that mineral conchology is the study of mollusk shells oh and in fact, she prepared oh, a paper. Oh, but don't bring oysters to Big John. <laughs> it's the last thing he needs. <laughs> Maybe she was. Well, that's her mistake. Oh, God. And she prepared a paper for the esteemed Linnaean Society about a parasite that rots the livers of sheep. That was also an area of study. Oh, my God, this sounds like real. This is not a... It's sh- real proper on. stuff. Writing poetry is one thing, because... Yeah. Because... People get Anyone can published. do that, can't they? Well, I mean, you'd hope someone would have some discretion, but generally people don't. But that sounds like a proper scientific yeah, paper. Yeah, proper research. A parasite that rots the livers of sheep. Although she was not herself allowed to attend the Linnaean Society meetings because she was a woman. And so a, uh, a man had to present her paper in her stead. <sighs> 
bloody rotters. I know. They're like, we quite like your research, but we don't want to hear it from your mouth. The shit in the past. Well, yeah. I'm not sure it's better for everyone now, but... The good thing, though, was that her marriage to the wealthy brewer, John Cobbold, meant that she was able to continue her research and take up a number of philanthropic concerns as well. Oh, do you know what? I love Big John so much more now for allowing that to happen. I know. Because at the beginning, I just thought he was a man with, you know... A young wife. Yeah. And too much money. And wanting, you know, one wife can't give me more than 15 children, I'm going to have some a new wife. <laughs> I demand more children. <laughs> but actually, if he's encouraging or being supportive of all her yeah, he's research supportive. and stuff, yes, sorry, Big John, I judge you too soon. And I'm sure there's a lot more of interest to learn about Elizabeth Cobbold, mm. but we must get back to Margaret. She did pass through the lives of these quite interesting people. And actually, I think it was obviously massively beneficial to her to spend time in this household because Elizabeth obviously saw something of a kindred spirit in, in Margaret and they got quite close mm. and Elizabeth taught her to read and write which was not typical for a woman of Margaret's standing. But Elizabeth obviously felt, you know, they had a good friendship. They yes. developed a good friendship. So that was beneficial in the long term for Margaret to have been in this house. There's also more fun tales of Margaret's bravery from this time. Leaping off stuff. Leaping. Fires. Diving. <laughs> in particular, there's a good story about another rescue that delightful, brave Margaret carried out. <laughs> In the garden of the cobble's fine, large house was a deep lake with steep sides. Perhaps some would say not the best thing in a house where you've got a bazillion children running yeah, around. 22. Perhaps inevitably, one of the many children, this one, this one was called Henry, he got into difficulty having plunged into the lake. Henry 1 or Henry 2? I mean, there's not that many names in the world and you've got 22 children. As we've learned in the past, Henry, Anna, Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> so Henry had plunged over the edge and into the lake. Margaret, although she herself could not swim, got oh. into the lake. She grabbed onto the boughs of a tree which were trailing into the lake, pulled herself along the boughs of the tree, grabbed tiny Henry and held him above water Brilliant. while holding onto the tree until someone could come to scoop them both out. Yeah, that's bloody impressive if it's you can't brave, swim it? yourself. I think it's very brave mm. to do that. And once again, she was praised and admired for her courage and resourcefulness in the circumstances. But a dark shadow of criminal behaviour. Oh, it's William, the scoundrel. It's about to loom over Margaret's happiness and her domestic life with the cobbles. It's the scoundrel William, as you have predicted. He'd been getting up to no good. Smuggling was rife in 18th century Suffolk. Mm. And he was in it up to his neck. He and Margaret saw each other just a few times over the years... And she kept trying to persuade him to give up his criminal lifestyle because she was basically a law-abiding person. And she, you know, we've seen examples that she was tried to do the right thing. She tried to live a law-abiding life. And he tried, well, the reports say he tried to be an honest seaman, but he kept going back to his old ways. Mm. I guess the money was too tempting. And the excitement, maybe. Well, the, the excitement, who knows what horror William was. Oh, William. So um, he kept returning to his illegal ways. But unfortunately, Margaret was unable to get over him, basically. So she still had this torch for William Loud, even after all these years. You can't help who you love. I was trying to explain that to my class this week. 
when in our book, <laughs> our book, she loves Colin, and Colin's not a, one of the kids oh, put no. their hand up and went, but Colin's not a handsome hero. And I was like, that's not how it works. Who? So is there a handsome hero? Yeah, but she doesn't love the handsome no. hero. She loves Colin. And what, what's Colin's Colin deal? Colin makes her laugh. Oh, Colin makes her laugh. So maybe William Loud made her laugh. Yeah, but... Colin's yeah. a terrible name for a, a love interest. Uh, it's set in the 1970s, our book, so I think Sorry, everyone called... who's called Colin. <laughs> I don't think many people are called Colin. But, it, but the thing being that you can't help it, can you? If someone makes you laugh, she can't help it if William's... Got... It's true. On the other hand, in every other respect, she seems to be quite a kind of sensible person. Yes, and if he's such a rotter... So, who knows? Anyway, she hadn't seen him for a while. And she wanted to try and track William down. So she started this kind of trail of inquiry. It sounds like she was being led up the garden path a bit, to be honest, though. She was talking to people that had known him and they were like, oh, I heard he was in London. I heard he was in this place. I heard he was doing this thing. Is he just telling all the girls he's wherever he... No, I think it was just that, you know, it was a, a trail of criminals and she was trying to ask other criminals where this other criminal was and none of the criminals wanted to give anything away. <laughs> But in 1796, she left the service of the Cobolds to go on the search for William. Oh, no. So Margaret, she left. No. She left this, what sounds like quite a nice setup where she had her good friend Elizabeth. She was well regarded, but she was determined that she must find William. Through a series of convoluted communications with dubious associates, she thought she had ascertained that William was in London. She was desperate to see him. I'm cringing so much, I'm not liking this at all. She returned surreptitiously to the house of the cobbles and stole a horse from their stables. Oh! Margaret! She's crossed the line! She's crossed a line, hasn't she? On this horse, she rode to London disguised as a man. That's kind of cool, but she's crossed the line still because the cobbles are nice. It was later reported in the Ipswich Times that she rode 70 miles in 10 hours and all were astonished at the time that this diminutive woman had managed to cover this vast distance. Mm. The reports were obviously, oh, she's a horse thief, but also they were like, oh, but for a woman to do this amazing feat was very impressive. So there was a kind of mixed reporting. Unfortunately, the horse she had taken was an unusual colour. Apparently it was what, a straw what, a strawberry road or something. Why would she do that? I don't know. Desperate. I think she was desperate. And despite her disguise as a as a man, it wasn't long after her arrival in London that she was apprehended. And she hadn't even managed to meet up with William. I don't think he was even there. It was oh. the definition of a wild goose chase. Oh, this is the saddest thing. William was the goose. <laughs> But a shit goose, what's the point of chasing him? <laughs> what a shit wild goose. Also, he could have sent her some kind of message after all this well, time. I know, but who knows? He could have been off at sea in the, no, in the Canary Islands. No, he's just been a scoundrel. Or something. I don't know where he was. So the whole thing was in vain. Oh, Margaret. And we know what happens to horse thieves. Yeah. What happens? Death. Let's hear what happens. Her trial was held back in her home county, Suffolk. At Suffolk Summer Assizes in Bury St Edmunds. Margaret entered a plea of guilty because she was guilty. You know, she's not this can't a be the end trickster. Of the story. Oh, Casey looks so distressed. Oh, he said it was going to be fun. <laughs> I haven't been here for so long. I should be laughing about yeah. a dead crown in a boat. Let's see what happens. Instead, this is happening. To Let's me. see what happens. It's a roller coaster ride. <laughs> she entered a plea of guilty and she remained steadfast and composed during the trial. Despite several character witnesses testifying that uh, she actually 
in every other respect had behaved in an exemplary fashion throughout her life. The sentence was passed down. It was death. It was only I when... I needed to hold on. This isn't getting better. <laughs> Margaret remained calm, but it was only when she saw her father crying that she broke down. Oh, bloody hell. It's not looking good. It's not looking good, is it, Katie? No, it's horrible. Will our story end? As it so often does. A hanging attended by thousands. There's a glimmer of hope. Of all people, the cobbled family made a powerful and convincing appeal on Margaret's behalf, even though it was they she had Mm. stolen the horse from. Did they get the horse back? (laughs) I don't know what happened to the horse. I just wondered, did the London police keep it or did they give it back? No, I guess you give the horse back. The London police can't impound a horse. Because if you get your horse back, then... Put it in the evidence chamber. It may have been the fact that she saved the life of young Master Henry. Mm. It may have been the many years of good and faithful service. But they were prepared to overlook the singular act of theft and betrayal and they put in a plea for clemency to the judge. The appeal was successful. Woo! Thank God! It's a roller coaster. The appeal was successful and the sentence was commuted to seven years transportation to Australia. Now... She didn't actually go to Australia. She went somewhere worse. No, she just went to jail in Ipswich. That might be worse. (laughs) So I don't really know what the deal is. So she got this sentence, but presumably do they say, well, you won't go for a while, so we'll put you in prison here first or... Maybe, yeah. I don't know. Or is it... Because as you normally like, you can have this or you can have this. No, she didn't get the choice. No, no, but I think it wasn't the choice, but it's like the similar amount, wasn't it? Oh, maybe. You can have seven years here or you can... Or we'll do this. Although actually, I looked at various sources and most of the sources say it was a seven years sentence to transportation in Australia. But the BBC said it was just a seven year jail sentence. Uh, I don't know who to trust. It's not the BBC, basically. (laughs) Not the BBC. (laughs) We're just recording this the day that it's uh, come out that basically the BBC blackmailed Diana into doing a uh, interview. Or Bashir did, didn't he? Does he embody the BBC or he, is he a lone agent? A lone wolf. Yes, a lone a wolf. A maverick. <laughs> Martin Bashir, the maverick. Iceman. <laughs> I don't think anyone calls Martin Bashir Iceman. I, just, I don't was... think so either. Oh, dear. But anyway, um, I think that she obviously got this sentence and then maybe they don't do the transportations all that often, so mm. she just got sent to prison in uh, Ipswich. So she went off to Ipswich Jail. There we are, in Ipswich Jail. Is it time for another drink? It's definitely time for another drink. Oh, I'm going to sniff. I've been handed a mug, which I think is the first time on this podcast we've ever been handed a mug for a drink. (laughs) Oh, it smells strange. It smells herby. Is it Herbie? It yes, probably. Okay, let's try. Shall I? Have I mean, a it sip? is. It is warm. Try, try, try. Is it hot though? Hotter than I expected. Ooh, ooh. Mm. <laughs> it's a whole world of boozy tea. Ooh. Um, <laughs> so mm. okay, I'm. I'll just report on the flavour. I'm not very good at flavours. Uh, Herbie, boozy. what's in this it's tasty so this is a whole world of smugglers punch because i picked up smugglers punch smugglers oh (laughs) 
Okay, smugglers. I may have slurred that word, but the word was smugglers. Smugglers um, punch. Smugglers punch. Because you told me in the story there would be some smuggling. Yeah, William Loud is a um, smuggler. This has a load of smuggling stuff oh, wow. in it. I found Ooh, the is it cloves? Uh, well, I don't know because it's got tea in it. I've just had a hint when you said that. I had an inkling of cloves. It's got nutmeg in it because nutmeg's super expensive and mm. Um, mm. and cloves too probably. And it's got hot tea and it's got some rum mm. and some brandy because these are the things smugglers oh like. Oh my god! And so I imagine these are all the things that were smuggled. But I also think these are the things that smugglers would like to drink hot to keep them going on the yes, cold on nights. the high seas. Did you just make this up out of your brain? No, I googled smugglers' drinks this afternoon. Okay, amazing. But this has turned out <laughs> because quite well. I had another drink planned, and then it, yeah, it went we'll do right. that another time. Yeah, yeah, that's coming back. Not Ooh, that I'm last minute. I quite like this, and it's a really blustery, cold, grey, rainy day. So this is actually perfect. Mine was a bit more of a hot day drink. And it wasn't appropriate, but this is... Well, you don't know what the weather's going to do. The weather's gone crazy. It's May. But this is Ooh. for smugglers. Because it's... it's all those things, isn't it? Like brandy and... Spices. Yeah. When I said herbs, I meant spices. We do that creepy poem at school, the Watch the Wall, What's My the Darling, poem? Where the Gentlemen Go By. I don't know it. Um, I think it's it's one of those things like Kipling or something and it's about when the smugglers come and everyone has to pretend it's not too it's everyone has to pretend they're not really coming and it's you know oh, brand, brandy for the parson backy for the car oh, and they watch kind the of all, all, my gent- watch they, all they're all getting backhanders yeah watch yeah. The all my darling while the gentlemen go by oh amazing and then you might get a lacy doll from France or something I see and some clothes from Egypt yes <laughs> and so the, all that stuff's in here oh it's tasty oh I like it Okay, back to the story. Where are we? Margaret's in jail. Boo hiss. Boo hiss, but she has escaped a death sentence. Hooray! (laughs) I think William should step up and go, I'll do that sentence for you. I don't think that's how jail works. Because if it was, you'd just get rich people paying poor people to do their sentences for them. Yes, that's true. That's Oh my gosh, that's horribly true. And that Jeffrey would be Archer, a and who wants to do my sentence for me? <laughs> it would be an absolute nightmare. I believe that Mark Morrison paid someone to do his community service for him. That's very interesting. I know. I'm surprised that he would do such a thing. Not Mark Morris, though, the singer of the Blue Tones. <laughs> he didn't he may also, it. we just don't know We this. don't know. It didn't hit the papers. Okay, what will happen next? There's more to go in this story. You're worried, aren't you? Oh, it's so far. You said it's a roller coaster, but so far, I feel I'm on a horrible downward helter skelter towards doom. Well, let's see what happens next. For the next few years, Margaret was held in Ipswich jail. The transportation to Australia did not transpire, and she was, by all accounts, a model prisoner. Quite well regarded, popular with. The other prisoners, popular with the guards. Well, she sounds like a nice person. And also, I figure a servant's got to be better in a prison than someone who's used to putting their weight is going to be better. In- sure. However, something was about to happen. William! Oh, <laughs> the rotter! <laughs> that roguish fellow, he was arrested and brought to the very same jail on smuggling charges. This does seem weird, doesn't it? But this is what I'm told. This is what I've read by, well, I said already, there's some BBC writing on on, uh, Margaret Catchpole. There's the Reverend Cobbold's book about her. There's quite a lot of information about her in other areas, which I won't say because it gives something away about later. So he was arrested and brought to the jail and him and Margaret were 
reunited, presumably through some sturdy bars, because I presume there was a man and a woman's side of the jail. I've also been like, hang on, in my picture mm. of a jail, based in mind, these jails have been built early in this. Remember, this is the 1780s, yeah, but, 1790s, yeah, still, sorry. So, so what, just because there's some Georges in charge, they haven't whacked holes through the prison in the middle and then like suddenly put up bars so that people can see each other well oh so sorry i've made that thing up about the bars they maybe okay. were, but all i can assume because they made a plan is that they were able to communicate so maybe they, they were a, able to maybe communicate. they had a fresh air thing every day maybe they had a deal with a guard who was like carrying messages mm-hmm. back and forth i don't know but william ended up in the same in the same prison i can just imagine that they would be in the same prison but on different sides it's like if you and Chris lived in the same horrific... And what, you just wave from a distance? My no, love, I think you could love. not even know. You could be in the same... My logic is you can be in the same prison as someone for 10 years and not even know that they're in another cell. That's true, but I bet gossip went round. Oh, And gossip. if people knew why she was in there, they're sure to be... Because also, Ipswich Jail, realistically, it's not going to be that busy. I mean, we've talked in the past about Cambridge Jail back in a similar period, and it was it was really small. It wasn't like there yeah, were, you know, yeah, hundreds yeah, of prisoners. True, true, true. It's going to be a quite a sort of low-key affair. So the chances are you would encounter or at least hear about the other prisoners. In the, I suppose in also the I forget that you're going to have people coming around to bring your food and your bedding. Yeah, and of course. Even if you're paying course. them and stuff, yeah. Somehow Margaret managed to get the money together for William's bond, for his bail bond. So Was he, that an option for her? No, because she'd already been sentenced. Uh, okay. She managed to somehow get this money together and pay for him to be released from prison, but with the promise of a future plot underway. The pair had hatched a plan to flee, flee on a ship to Holland where they would oh. finally get married. But first, of course, Margaret needed to get out of the jail. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty big obstacle. It's a massive obstacle. However, she began to put some plans into place. She staged a daring escape out of Ipswich jail by scaling the 6.7 metre prison wall. That's 22 feet. The wall was studded with spikes along the top and Margaret managed to somehow escape it using a gardening frame and some linen clothesline. What? Awesome. Tiny, okay, she is awesome. That tiny is, that is Margaret, cool. 5.2 feet. She scaled this wall that was 22 feet. That's quite high. Was well, three Chris's. It's three Chris's and more. So tiny Margaret used some clothesline, somehow managed to get out of this bloody Okay, now she prison. is awesome. And scampered away. Again, she embarks on a disguise. Where's she getting these disguises, I don't know. by the way? I don't she, know. She's got a costume bag. because that's. I wonder if William's kind of set up a series of points along the way where Margaret goes to collect these disguises, but I don't know. Anyway, she flees to the coast to meet up with William. Are you ready for more roller coaster? Oh, the bugger's not there. <laughs> he oh, is there. The- Perhaps it's even worse, Katie, because he is there. He loves her. He is there. But the police are on their trail. Oh, God. The law caught up with them on a Suffolk beach. And in the ensuing melee, William is shot and killed. Poor William. Shot and killed on the Suffolk beach. Oh, I'm so poor William. I thought William was the blackguard of this Well, I mean, he probably still is, but... But mainly poor Margaret, because she's made this daring escape up the clothesline over the spiky wall into the disguise to the Suffolk beach, thinking she's going to escape to Holland and then only to see her lifelong love be 
shot to death on a Suffolk beach. Her dreams are in this tatters. This is really, just to be clear, this is really sad. And you oh, told me it was going to be a roller coaster of ups and downs. There's been, oh, there's more ups coming. I'm not sure there are. <laughs> I wonder if I've misjudged what an up is. Her dreams are in tatters. There's going to be no escape to Holland. There's going to be no marriage. Which presumably she's going back to prison. Margaret is back before the courts of justice. Then I'm going to need a lot of cuddles. For a second time, Margaret was sentenced to death. What? I'm sorry, everyone. I'm she's going to die this time. I'm sorry, everyone, but there's more to come. So don't wa- please don't worry. Please just drink your smuggler's tea. Everyone have a sip. Everyone have a sip of your tea. Oh, oh that's fortified me for the news ahead. Are you fortified? It isn't clear why, but Margaret got lucky a second time. Woo! It could be the cobbles intervened again, although I don't think they necessarily would intervene. A second I think time. at this point they're going, okay, we really love you, but you're uh, making bad choices. Her general exemplary behaviour has counted in her favour. And maybe this narrative of the fact that she was sort of led astray, which I think people, it's sexism, really. People want to blame the man for all the things that have gone wrong, almost. They think, oh, Margaret couldn't have come up with all this stuff herself. She couldn't have possibly thought to steal a horse and ride to London. Exactly. She couldn't have possibly come up with this insane idea to escape out of Ipswich jail with a clothesline. Mm. So William must have been to blame for all of this. So she actually... Again, her sentence was commuted. This time, however, transportation for life. It's assuming that Australia will be the worst thing that could ever happen. Well, I mean, What's worse than death, Australia? Again, I think we've touched on it before. You know, I'd rather go to Australia. Yeah. Wouldn't we all? I mean, once we got there, we might not. The thing is, I there suppose pe- people knew nothing of Australia. So actually... It probably seemed incredibly Yes, because no one was coming back going, there are spiders. <laughs> I've had a great time. <laughs> no, but no one was coming back going, I've got a tan, but there are spiders. Because <laughs> that might make you think... No, like, I mean no one was coming back. Yeah. <laughs> because once you've got there, that's How a huge endeavour. So anyway, this time Margaret was I mean, facing just... actual transportation, not just going to prison. Here's the thing that's quite nice. Margaret had stayed in touch with Elizabeth Cobbold. she going to Australia too? No. Are they starting a school? No, she's going to be a lovely philanthropist in Ipswich forever. However, shortly before Margaret went on her voyage, she wrote this to Elizabeth. This is a sad letter. What I'm saying is it's nice that they stayed in touch. She expressed her, her feelings about being sent to Australia. My sorrows are very great. To think I must be banished out of my own country and from all my dearest friends forever. It is very hard indeed for anyone to think on it, and much more for me to endure the hardship of it. In late May of 1801, a ship called the Nile set sail for New South Wales, carrying Margaret along with a number of other female convicts, who had also been uh, sentenced to the same fate. They arrived at last in Botany Bay in December of the same year. Mm, That's so long, isn't it? So long. That would be, So they went in late May, that's now... That's right now. They get there at Christmas. They get there at Christmas. Think how many things we're going to do in places we're going to oh go between now and Christmas. And all they do is be on one boat. And I looked up, because I thought, bloody hell, this is a really long time. And I looked up what was the kind of average journey to get from England to mm. Australia in that era. And it said about four months. So this was a slightly longer journey than usual, but God. Even four months, the places we go and the stuff we do in four months and the choices we have over what we eat and what we do. And I know. What we... And they were convicts as well, so they're not going to have had a fun time on that ship. However, Margaret, writing back to family and friends in England, reported that 
everyone aboard the ship had arrived safely in Sydney, not one woman had died on the journey, and she was surprised. Yeah, yeah, so, <laughs> that, that's, well, not one woman had died, exclamation mark. Yeah, exactly. So she wrote back, she was like, fucking hell, we're all alive. I don't know how that's yeah. happened, but we've all made it. We've all made it here. Actually, she didn't have too bad a time. What happens next? For the first 18 months of her life in Australia, she worked as a cook for a man called James Palmer, who was the commissary of the penal colony that she worked for. Or sorry, that she had been indentured into. So she works the boss of the... Basically, yeah. So she, um, he was also an Englander. He'd come over on the First Fleet. And he, apparently there was a sort of thing where the kind of the big bosses of the penal colony could pick the convicts that they thought would be useful to them. Mm. So they were like, oh, she's got experience working in these kind of wealthy households. So let's pick her out and, and she can come and work for us. Rather than, unfortunately, the women who'd probably come from much worse upbringings and hadn't had even a tiny well, a iota of, of fortune. A lot of prostitutes and thieves. Exactly, exactly. So actually, um, Margaret wasn't in the worst position when she got there. Okay, is this a slight up? She had a rather elevated position for a convict of the time and she kind of worked in these different colonial households for people that worked within the penal colony and then Palmer recommended her to a, a friend called Rouse who had a family and she went to look after the children in this Rouse family. So actually she, was, she wasn't doing too badly mm. for some of them. And she, all through this time, she was writing letters back to... Elizabeth Cobbold, her friend, and also to her family. So there's a really good record from this whole period of all her experiences in Australia. Which is really cool because I don't imagine many people were writing back from that. No. Because not many of the people that went could write shortly. Exactly. And so that was why this experience that she'd had in the Cobbold household, where she was taught to read and write, mm. was, was really important because actually these letters have become a kind of really important historical document because they document the experience of female convicts. They document... All sorts of things about meetings with indigenous Australians, what it was the like the geography of the place, the wildlife, the all sorts of things. And she was writing all of this in these really detailed letters. That's so cool. Back to friends and family. So we get an insight not just into her life, but into the sort of general life of the penal colonies and also kind of frontier life of the time in Australia. Which is why she's, as I said at the beginning, much better documented than many other women in her Mm. position would have ever been. So she's an unusual case, really. There's a slight down... But not too bad. Wait. We barely got off the ground. (laughs) Just a tiny down in that she writes back to her uncle that she had a suitor. How old is she at this point? Just uh, Anyone can have a suitor. So she's in her late 30s. Oh, okay. Yeah. And she writes back to her uncle. She's got a suitor. She doesn't name him, but she says that he's a gardener, but he studies the natural world. He's really interested in botany. He collects specimens of flora and fauna. But she says, I'm not for marrying because, because she still loves William. Because the memory of William is too much. And she, she says, I can't see myself ever marrying after the tragedy. Oh. Of William. However, it sounds like she had some friends, male friends. Some, I don't know. She doesn't tell her uncle. No, well, do you know what? Fair enough. But I've not written to my uncle about my sex life ever. So, I mean, that's a definite yes. Fair enough. It's some interesting things that she also sends back along with the letters. So, one of the things she sends back is perhaps from this suitor who's always collecting specimens. She acquired two lyrebird specimens 
which are an Australian bird. Mm. And the specimens would be, as I know from my knowledge of the zoology museum they're called skins so they're kind of like flat so you don't send back to england a taxidermied bird you send a kind of squashed a squashed oh. bird laid out flat but she's okay i'm imagine that's quite beautiful and gross all at once well it, i think the idea is it allows people to preserve and study so she sent back to elizabeth cobbled just who was as we mm. know interesting a, bird. a zoologist and geologist margaret sent her back these two bird specimens which are now in the collection of the Ipswich Museum. Oh, cool. Because Elizabeth donated various of her collections to the Ipswich Museum. So it sounds like, you know, she's Margaret's having an okay time. She's she's mingling with some interesting people. She's having a better life than many convicts could possibly dream of having because she's, she's living with prawns. these... Probably she's got prawns. <laughs> she's drinking smugglers' tea. No, no one mentions smugglers in Margaret's presence. They are smugglers in Australia. I guess around the coves. I think the thing with uh, the UK is we're literally everything is a coastline. Yeah, yeah. But so also, but also a lot of the stuff everywhere. was in France, like coming from the continent. Yeah. So it's just a quick whiz over the water exactly. in the dark. Just whiz over. Now. Better or worse? Better. Margaret used her usual resourcefulness and her stalwart character that we already know to build herself a new life in Australia. She did write back to her family saying that she missed her friends and family in the UK and she did long to return however she received a pardon in 1814 and she was then free to do what she wished but she chose to stay in Australia well also surely you have to have enough money to well yes back. and that's the that's the badger if you haven't got enough money where are you gonna what you know that's the bloody badger but actually she wrote, we have all these details of her life that she wrote back in letters. And actually, I think she had a lot more independence in Australia mm. as a pioneer woman, as it were, than she would have done had she returned to the UK. So actually, she was able to forge quite a kind of independent, successful life as a, as she called herself, a, a colonial. She was aware of, of her status as having come into this country as a kind of non, you know, non-native, a kind of invasive species. But she also recognised that she had a status of independence that she wouldn't have been able to have in the UK. She lived in Richmond. She worked as a farmer and a midwife. Here's another letter, a little excerpt from 1811. And this gives us a little insight into her situation. I rent a little farm of about 15 acres, but half of it is standing timber. On the cleared ground, I hire men to put in my corn and I work a great deal myself. I have got 30 sheep and 40 goats, 30 pigs... And two dogs. That's, I mean, that is a lot of stuff for a woman at this point yes. to own herself. She it's says, good work, go Margaret. They care for me, for I live alone, not one in the house. So she is mm. in this house, but she has all her Oh, do you know what? Okay, fine, you're right. That is a happy ending. I that, think that's nice. Yeah. But I have, got, I have got a little epilogue, which just rounds off the story of Margaret. But it's sad. Oh. But you know, everyone dies. Just thought we were finally having an up <laughs> in our bloody roller coaster of horrors. Well, let me tell you this. Margaret became known as one of the most renowned midwives and carers and nurses in her area. She was, again, really well respected by everybody in the community. In the year of 1819, which was almost 20 years after she'd arrived in Australia, she caught influenza after caring for a shepherd who had been afflicted. And sadly, this was what ultimately took her life. She was 57 she had lived a life of adventures and escapades that 
many women of the time could not even dream of having Mm. so many ups and downs wonderful adventures but also as we've seen quite a lot of lows but really quite a remarkable woman I think yeah definitely what a brilliant character yeah and a rare documentation of such a life Mm. that gives us an insight into into I think that's so interesting that she left all those letters yeah and she was buried in the cemetery of St. Peter's Church in Richmond, New South Wales, some 10.5 thousand miles from where she was born in Suffolk. Oh, and that's the story of Margaret Catchpole. Isn't that crazy in those times where some people don't move? It, it's such a bizarre system that the British government decided to do that with criminals. Yeah. Such a bizarre system. And she, for half her life, lived in this tiny, tiny area. Mm. And then the other half of her life was just thousands and thousands of miles away from where she grew up and then again lived in another kind of small area where she made a new life for herself. It's absolutely mind-boggling though, isn't it, that that's what they decided to do with people that had... Well, the prisons were full. They didn't know what else to do. But it's really still a weird leap to go to. We're going to yeah. pay for boats to send them Yeah, but they I, six months across the world. I mean, what we see with Catchpole is it was... I mean, for her, even though she was a convict... Yeah, it was actually whole... her life in Australia was not too bad, and she wrote back to her family that she said actually she'd been dreading being on mm. Australia, but she said actually other than the you know the spiders, the spiders, <laughs> and she said that she specifically it was like the birds are wonderful, but she said life here is is much more similar to life in England mm. than I could have imagined because the first fleet had set up a kind of replica of English society, only with nicer weather and more spiders. <laughs> yeah, but it's um, it's an amazing story and it's a rare insight, yeah. I think, into the life of a kind of a lower class, working class woman. Yeah. And in... one who was also so awesome as well. Awesome! And the funny thing is about Richard Cobbold's book about her is that he kind of tried to write it as if it was this story of a kind of a fallen woman who was saved by the fact that she was taught to read and write and this kind Mm. of, you know, made her into a better person. But actually... When you read the narrative, it doesn't fit at all because she was already doing these brilliant things Mm. when she was young. And then even after she learned to read and write, she was breaking out of prison, climbing over walls, leaping about. And so it didn't it didn't fit any narrative of, of that kind of fallen woman and redemption. It was just a kind of story of someone who was a bit complicated and. In love. Just the whole person who did stuff. Exactly. But did he have a bit of a crush on her, do you think, as a young man or child, a, a teenager in her care or maybe. a young man in her care? I, I and don't maybe know. he wanted to make this thing that it was all right that she was complicated because he was going to make his own version of her. Maybe. Or I think, was he trying to kind of toot his own horn a bit like, look how brilliant my family were? Yeah, yeah, we've done this thing. <laughs> yeah. By our beer, because we're also really but the, nice people. the good thing about it is that even though he's trying to put this narrative on her, when you read what he wrote, you're like, it doesn't work, Richard, because all the bits about her leaping on horses and mm. leaping over walls and all this stuff is brilliant. And where you're like, oh, but then she learned to da-da-da-da-da. And you're like, yeah. no, I don't care. You know, she rescued Henry out of a pond, but she also rescued this woman when she was 13. And, and yeah. also maybe he had to, I don't know, might be giving him too much credit, but maybe he had to have a kind of slant like that to get people to want to read his story at the Could time. Could be. Could be. But anyway, Margaret Catchpole, 
Yeah, she's awesome. She's brilliant. And she's she's sort of a heroine of Suffolk, but she's also a bit of a heroine of New South Wales because, again, she's unusual in that she was chronicling mm. the life in that period. So there's if you look her up, there's loads of entries in the kind of Australian who's who and all yeah. this kind of thing, which is unusual for someone from Suffolk. I think that's the end of Margaret Catchpole. Have you any final thoughts? Just get her a cake. Get that's her a why, cake, I think that's Chris? my final thought. Sure, Chris agrees. Get the lady a cape. Thank you, everyone. What a delight it has been to have Katie back with us. Thank you for having me back. Okay, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye, Katie. Goodbye, Ruth. And thank you. See you next time. Bye-bye.